0: Hi, it's Patrick here. And before we start, I just want to say thanks for listening. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you found us via The World in Words, hope you like the new pod. On with the show.
1: Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor.
2: This is our magnet, this is our scanner, so we can actually go inside. Um,
0: this is so a lab at MIT. This, this lab manager Hope Keynes overseeing uh, the, demagnetization like the, de-magnetization the demagnetization of a woman is like about to slide, slide into program an program fMRI machine so and submit to a so series of tests.
2: We have like a time course of where blood is flowing in your brain and we know which parts of your brain are doing work during these different tasks that we're gonna give you. And today we're doing language tasks, since you're a polyglot and know so many languages. Uh, We're really interested in how your brain activity differs from someone else's brain activity.
0: As far as the researchers are aware, this is the very first modern-day study of the polyglot brain. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. I struggle with language learning. You struggle with language learning. We all struggle with language learning. Well, nearly all of us. In today's episode, polyglots. What, if anything, sets them apart? Kavi, your parents are from southern India, right? H- how many languages do they speak? Well, my mom speaks two languages, English and Malayalam, and
1: plus a bit of Tamil. My dad grew up in Singapore, so he speaks kind of three and a half-ish English, Malayalam tamil and enough malay at least to order malay food at like a hawker stall and and chat with the person behind the counter
0: wow three and a half languages just as easy as breathing right
1: right it's just all around them like air
0: right it's it's like that in a lot of multilingual parts of the world not here though not in the english speaking world i guess that's why our news coverage of polyglots is is a bit freak showish
1: Imagine being able to master huge numbers of languages with ease. Here on Breakfast, though, we're speaking foreign languages with a man who's fluent in 11 of
3: them. Now, you're called a polyglot because of so many languages. How do you just have a brain for it?
1: Are these super linguists a product of hours of study? Or could it be they are engineered differently in the brain?
4: I went to look at the brain of Emil Krebs, who was a German diplomat who died in 1930.
0: This is Michael Erard, a language writer.
4: And his brain, after he died, became part of a expert genius brain collection in Dusseldorf.
0: Sounds ominous, eh? 1930s Germany? Expert genius brain collection?
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like a
0: gruesome Nazi experiment. And to pile on with the gruesome, this dead diplomat's brain, it was sliced into pieces. But Emil Krebs himself, I hasten to add, he had nothing to do with the Nazis. He predated them, even if his brain was on show for them.
1: So why was he considered a genius?
0: Because over the course of his life, he acquired proficiency in 68 different languages.
1: I did not even know that was possible. 68. No wonder they want to study his brain. Did they figure anything out?
0: Well, th- no, they didn't. Not in the 1930s. But Krebs's brain, it was preserved. And that was how Michael Erard got to see it. And he says, more recently, German neuroscientists took another look at that brain using, of course, much more precise instrumentation. And what they found was...
4: The structure of cortical cells in certain areas of his brain were extremely unusual. And not only were these structures denser and different, they were denser and different in unexpected parts of the brain.
1: So what does that mean? Was this guy born with an exceptional brain?
4: <laughs> that is the key question when
0: it comes to the study of polyglots, or for that matter, hyperpolyglots, like Emil Krebs. Was his brain always like that, or did it become that way over time?
4: You know, all of our brains change through experiences that we have, through things that we learn, things that we remember. If we have disease, if we experience some trauma, our brain will work to rewire itself So the fact that Krebs had portions of his brain that looked different is not necessarily a surprise, given that he was so involved with languages. To that degree, the brain is like a muscle. It reflects the things that people use it for.
0: And that makes it much more difficult to establish a timeline.
4: Now the question is, was there something about Krebs's brain that preceded his exposure to any of those languages that would have allowed him To build those structures faster, more durably, and to make them more efficient than other people's brains would have been.
0: Michael Rudd really hones in on this set of characteristics that he believes the hyperpolyglot brain may possess. Like he says, speed, durability, efficiency. And he put those skills together, and they're often called plasticity, which just may predispose people to these amazing linguistic feats. But there's a problem.
4: That's a kind of plasticity factor that you need to measure uh, with a living brain.
0: Yep, Emil Krebs may have been a multi-tongued genius, but he's a dead genius.
4: You can't surmise that from the slices of brain that I was looking at.
3: Ah, so we need a living brain.
4: Yes, which is where
0: Susanna Zaraisky comes in.
3: I speak Russian, English, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Bosnian, serbo and also Ladino, which is the Spanish spoken by the Jews who were expelled from Spain in the 15th century. Okay, so, so this is
1: nine languages. Come on, step it up, Susanna.
0: Plus, a bit of Arabic, she told me, Hebrew, Hungarian, and Greek as well. And she doesn't study these languages in much of a formal way, like in a classroom, repeating words, doing homework, that kind of thing which sets her apart from many others in the polyglot community. You
3: give them a grammar book and they just absorb it, you know. Um,
0: Dudes, more men. Yes,
3: more men, yeah, that really like the grammar books. I would be bored out of my mind if I had something like that.
0: How Susanna learned so many languages and what happens when she gets her brain scanned as part of MIT's polyglot study, that's after the break. You don't need me telling you this is an important time for democracy. It's an election year. We're in the midst of an impeachment. There's stuff going on in Iran, Iraq, Ukraine, and all of these things. They're part of the story about democracy in America. You need to stay in touch. You need the world, as in the fabulous public radio show hosted by Marco Werman, First name Marco, last name Werman. Not as a minority of listeners have mistakenly thought, Mark O'Werman, that quasi Celtic personality who lives in an alternate universe. I know this because I used to work alongside him. He's Marco, he's not Irish, and he's on the world. Listen on your local public radio station. Okay,
1: so you said before the break that Susanna Zarysky, who's participating in this study of polyglots, that she doesn't pick up languages in a formal way. So how does she learn?
0: I think in her case, it comes down to her life story. Susanna was born in St. Petersburg in Russia, though back then St. Petersburg was called Leningrad and Russia was part of the Soviet Union. So, the family were Russian-speaking, and like a lot of Jewish people living behind the Iron Curtain, they were the targets of anti-Semitism, and they were looking to get out. And they only had one shot at being able to do that.
3: My mother had an uncle, but she knew that his family had settled in St. Louis, Missouri.
0: That was a start, but Susanna's mom had no idea how to get in touch with this uncle. This was the height of the Cold War, the 1970s, and Soviet citizens... They just weren't permitted to stay in touch with family members abroad. So Susanna's mom had to try to surreptitiously track this uncle down. And
3: so she went to a library in Leningrad and found the address of the city hall in St. Louis and wrote a letter in English. They got someone to help them write a letter in English saying, we're the relatives of such and such person. He came at this time. We know that he worked as a pharmacist, would like to get in touch with him.
0: So they had this letter all set to go, but there was another problem. Which was? Well, in order to receive a reply, they needed to include their own address in Leningrad in the letter, but they couldn't because if the letter was opened by the Soviet authorities, they'd get into trouble. So they just sat on it. They did nothing until the following summer when they were on vacation in another part of the Soviet Union, Lithuania.
3: And there was a barber there who was Jewish and his... He had a brother in Israel, and he corresponded with this brother. And what he did is he helped other Soviet Jewish families that had gone to summer in Lithuania correspond with their family members um, in another countries, so that they could leave the Soviet Union.
1: I can't help but be amazed by how brave this Jewish barber was to help people escape the Soviet Union. But he and his brother in Israel, what sort of help could they provide?
0: Well, a generation or two previously in this part of Europe, before World War II and the Holocaust, Lithuania was actually home to many Jews. And most of them spoke Yiddish as their mother tongue. So what these two brothers did all these years later was write these letters to each other in Yiddish, conveying and forwarding all of these messages between Jewish families scattered all over the world. And that way they'd get the messages past the Soviet censors.
3: Because the censors couldn't read Yiddish, so they had no idea what he was writing to his family. And because he was corresponding so much with this brother of his, he didn't think that he was gonna get caught by the censors and apparently the censors in Lithuania were more lenient than the ones in, in Russia. So he agreed to send this letter for my mother.
1: Wow, so this letter eventually arrives via Lithuania and Israel in St. Louis.
0: Yeah, but remember it goes only to the St. Louis City Hall. The information that Susanna's mother had about her uncle was incredibly sketchy, but at City Hall things just seemed to click into place.
3: The mailroom clerk was really fascinated by foreign stamps, and in the late 1970s it was very rare to get a letter with foreign Soviet stamps in the Midwest.
0: So instead of like casting this letter aside, the clerk took it to the mayor's office and got a member of staff there excited about it.
3: And that person looked in the phone book and just looked up the surname of my mother's relative, Zuckerman, and called various Zuckermans until she found the widow of my mother's
0: uncle. And so the connection was made. And not long after that, Susanna, aged three, along with her family, they emigrated to the US, to St. Louis.
1: It sounds like they overcame a lot of roadblocks because they had some good luck, but mostly because of people translating stuff.
0: Yeah, you can imagine the effect on Susanna when she was told all of this later in life. I mean, languages, knowledge of languages, and knowing more than other people. It meant freedom. So in the US, the family settled down, moved from Missouri to California. Susanna spoke Russian at home and English at school, and at age 15 she went to France on a foreign exchange program.
3: And I came back after two months in France, and I spoke fluent French with no American accent.
0: In high school she took another language.
3: And I took an intensive year in Spanish, and I was fluent.
0: Next came Italian.
3: Buongiorno, mi chiamo Susanna.
0: Then Portuguese.
3: Sometimes in the car, I would listen to Portuguese immigrant radio. Sintonizão, radio portuguesa. Where I live in California, there's a large population of Portuguese people from the Azores Islands.
0: She'd sing along with the songs and try to imitate the accents in the ads in between.
3: I don't know why, but there are a lot of funerary services owned by Portuguese, so I'd hear their advertisements for, like, funeral homes. Portuguese. I heard, you know, announcements for like Portuguese fish, bacalhau, like uh, whatever discounts they're having on alcohol at the different Portuguese stores. So I heard all of this in Portuguese.
0: Sometimes a car radio is all you need to immerse yourself in a language if you have the skills, that and the desire to
1: sing.
0: Susana was locked into her own method by now. It worked for her, but she couldn't figure out why it came so easily, and why it didn't for others. That's why when she heard there was a polyglot study underway at MIT, she knew she had to be a part of it.
1: So Susanna became a participant in the study?
0: Yeah, I think she was the 23rd polyglot <laughs> Sorry, to be, be tested.
2: So if you can press that button right there, and then awesome, and then turn in a circle.
0: I go along for Susanna's session, and she's <laughs> yeah. a bit nervous ahead of time. Understandably. I mean, she's about to spend two hours in a dark, noisy tube. Lab manager Hope Keen explains how the fMRI works, how it measures blood flow in the brain. The researchers can see in pretty much real time the destination of the blood flow, which region of the brain needs blood because it's exerting extra energy, which leads Susanna to wonder.
3: So it's possible that, like, in Spanish, one part of my brain is active, yeah. it, needs, it needs oxygen, and, or, or needs blood, and then yeah. in French it's another part of the brain?
2: So that's one hypothesis. There's a lot of different theories, basically, about how the brain reorganizes um, due to language. It sounds our, like
1: that's not the working hypothesis among the researchers.
0: Yeah, they, they don't think that specific languages are divided into regions of the brain. But in the tests that they give Susanna, while she's still inside the machine, she has earbuds on, and they bombard her with just this cacophony of voices and languages and what sounds like gibberish. Even for a polyglot,
1: that must be pretty dizzy. On
3: a certain day, an angel of God came to a young virgin named Mary.
0: That's a biblical verse, isn't it?
3: Yeah, This
0: kind of stopped me short, too. The
3: child will be the saviour who is promised by God. You must name the child Jesus. Jesus. It's because
0: the Bible is the world's most translated text. So you can draw on the same words and phrases in more languages than in any other piece of writing. So it's incredibly useful in tests. But yeah, it is weird to hear it as part of a scientific study. we God?
1: And what languages are we hearing?
0: I asked the lab's director, Ev Fedorenko, that. She told me that the languages are tailored to each participant.
2: We always include a native language, a couple of languages of high proficiency, a language in lower proficiency, and then two languages that are not familiar but related to some languages that are familiar, and then two languages that are totally unfamiliar, which for most of our participants have been Basque, which is an isolate language spoken in uh, southern Europe, and uh, Georgian, which is also apparently not a common language that polyglots learn.
1: And how did Susanna do?
0: Well, for ethical reasons, Ev Fedorenko can't tell me about any of the individual participants. But Susanna did pass on to me a little bit of what she was told. And it seems to match up with the results from most of the other participants. It's a little counterintuitive. So for monolinguals, who are kind of the control group here, the regions of the brains that are associated with language, they appear quite large on activation maps.
2: But for the polyglot, it looked like it was way, way kind of on the end of a continuum where these regions were small.
0: So for polyglots, there was less
1: blood flowing to the language regions?
0: Right. They were less engaged in those moments. So, for example, Susanna's brain showed her language regions least engaged when she heard English, which is effectively, if not technically, her mother tongue. For Russian and Italian, which they also played her, Both of which, she speaks well, but with less ease than English. There was more brain activity. And that was similar to the study's other participants.
2: That seemed to be a real finding, which then we started um, interpreting because it seemed like a real thing. And the most kind of obvious, plausible interpretation is in terms of efficiency.
1: Efficiency. Hmm, That word again.
0: Yeah, part of the skill set that may make up the plasticity of the polyglot brain.
1: Okay, that sounds like these MIT researchers have advanced their understanding. So what do we know about polyglots that we didn't know before?
0: Well, first off, we can dispel a few myths. Like, a lot of people, including some polyglots, believed that men were more likely to speak a ton of languages than women were. This study finds absolutely no evidence of that. Maybe that belief was out there because men, you know, like to hog the limelight, wouldn't you know? So it, it seemed like there were more of them who were polyglots. But it isn't a male thing. Next myth. It's a gay thing. Some people thought that. Or even a left-handed thing. In both cases, nope. There's also the theory that language and music are similar. They activate the same regions of the brain. Ev Fedorenko says, again, no, they don't. We react to music, we process it in totally different ways to how we process language. That's not to say that we can't use music to teach ourselves new languages like Susanna does, but the whole language-music analogy is something that drives brain scientists a little nuts.
1: Okay, so what about this question then that came up with Emil Krebs's brain? Was he born with a different brain or did it develop as he used it to learn all of those languages?
0: So this MIT study certainly helps us think more about that question, but it's not a longitudinal study. It's not looking at Susanna's brain over time from birth until now. It can't really get into questions of nature versus nurture, or for that matter, anything to do with genetics. I asked Ev about this, the brain at birth, genetics, all of that. And well, you'll hear what she has to say. For me, This was the most revealing part of my conversation with her. And it started when I asked her if she agreed that language learning remains a mystery to her.
2: It's definitely a mystery. And one thing that I would also guess is that I don't think there is going to be one way in which your brain is good for learning languages. I suspect there is going to be many strategies and some strategies will work for some people and other strategies will work for other people. And figuring out which way is the way for you is... um, you, you kind of have to <laughs> figure it out. I mean, and people, you know, that there is a big industry in trying to test kids early on and figure out if they have a talent for a particular thing. And right now people are trying to do it with genetics and it's just absurd, honestly. There's That's not based on good science. And I think the best you could, like, for example, if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out, like, does my kid have... A talent for X or Y. Well, why not expose them to a whole bunch of things and see which things they seem to enjoy doing and explore, right? Be a scientist, <laughs> try different things and see what works for you. And all brains are different, but most brains can find ways to get good at things. <laughs> and, uh, hard work will uh, often get you a long way. Like I think brilliance is often overrated.
0: So there it is, Carly. At the end of this investigation of linguistic brilliance, the brain scientist tells us brilliance is overrated.
1: I feel strangely relieved. Yeah, if you're trying to learn another language, or if you're a parent trying to raise multilingual kids, it feels like this great reminder that there's no one way to do things that are very difficult.
0: That's it for today. If you want to read more about polyglots and hyperpolyglots, I highly recommend Michael Erard's book, Babel No More, the search for the world's most extraordinary language learners. Also, Susanna Zaraeski has written a book full of helpful tips about language learning. It's called Language is Music.
1: Sound design for this episode was by Tina Toby. Thanks to John Barth, Gina James, Morgan Church, and everyone at PRX.
0: You can find Subtitle at all the usual social media platforms and at subtitlepod.com. And don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.
1: Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor.
4: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.